A few years back, several men that I worked with were discussing something that I, I, I'm already on dangerous ground, and I know there are ladies here in particular who are probably going to take offense at this, uh, but I just, I'm going to say at the outset, I'm not the guy who said what I'm about to report was said, okay? So don't, don't be angry with me, right? So we were having this discussion around the table in one of our Tuesday afternoon staff meetings, and somehow the topic of, of remarriage after uh, losing a spouse came up, and um, you know, kind of every, every guy had his own opinion, and, uh, and I do say, I think all of us were saying we're happily married, you know, why would you not want to see if you could, you know, be lucky or fortunate a second time, but one of the guys memorably scandalized our social and personal sensibilities, and I would add as we went home and told our wives, they were also scandalized, that's part of the reason I said what I did at the outset, when he confirmed that not only would he consider remarriage, but he went on to famously or infamously say, shoot fire, and that was like his little pet phrase, shoot fire, I'll probably have a date for her funeral. Yeah. See, did you just hear that response? Like, there are a few guys who are a little wide-eyed, but it was the ladies here who were like, what? Tell me who that is. We will end his life now, and he will not have that opportunity. I've shared that on a couple of occasions, and, and in part I do that to evoke a response, but it is always intriguing to me, too, that it, it actually offends our social and emotional and maybe even our spiritual sensibilities, and it raises a whole other set of questions, too, doesn't it? And if you could meet my friend, you would come to understand some things in time where you would say, oh, of course he would say that, but you'd need to know him for at least a few weeks or months before you might know his heart. And I'm happy to report to you too, he, he is happily married and loves his wife dearly. Um, but isn't it interesting how a comment like that uh, can evoke such a, a response from our hearts? It's not easy to talk about in other respects, and I'm aware of the fact that all of us have been touched by death. And those of you who've lost a spouse feel that in a particularly keen and poignant way. Death alters relationships. And Paul has been touching on that in his letter to the Romans. And now when we come to chapter 7, though, he's actually going to speak about death in the context of marriage and what that does to alter what we would even describe as a covenant relationship. There's no other relationship like this on earth that we can look to. And as, as much as parents love their children, parents and children are not in a covenant relationship. Um, you might have best friends. You might have business partners or or neighbors that you love dearly, but you're not in covenant relationship with them in the way that we are in marriage. And so as we come to Romans 7 this morning, I want you to be mindful of the force of that covenant relationship and how in marriage there's a bond that is created that, as we often say in our vows, uh, till death do us part, and there's good reason for that. Well, Paul's going to do some things that are really helpful as he continues to drive home the power of the gospel message that by his life and death, Jesus has forever altered a person's relationship with sin. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to, or I'm going to read the scripture, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the first five verses of Romans 7 this morning. 
Let's pray together. Father, we need your wisdom and insight, and we pray that you would speak by your Spirit through the Word that we may know your truth and believe it, that we may be transformed by it and brought to that place that you desire us to be, both today and in all the days that are yet to come. Bring us to that place until Christ is fully formed in us, as your word promises. So we are thankful that you not only have the power and the desire, but the purpose to change us, because we need to be changed. Give us grace to believe, to obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit." This is the word of the Lord. Now, Paul is touching on the binding power of the law, and he's trying to help us understand that through Jesus Christ, that power has been loosed. We've been released from it, but the law does, in fact, bind those who are alive to it. So he's actually continuing what he began to explain back in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 14, just by way of review. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not Under the law, and for context's sake, we might add that little word of understanding, as you once were, but under grace. And and remember, Paul has been speaking about the law as a a power system. It it doesn't mean that after salvation, you, you never look at the Ten Commandments again. It doesn't mean that the things that are clearly instructed or even commanded by God in other places in the Scripture have have no place in the heart of a believer. No, that would be a misunderstanding of grace itself and of the work of God. But remember, he's speaking to people, many of whom had grown up in a system of religion that used the law as a means to approach God. If you obey, God likes you. If you obey, you gain eternal life. If you keep the commandments, you're a really spiritual person. It's a power system, as one author refers to it. So now he says in verse 1, in in response to what has preceded this, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, and he's used that phrase before back in chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Jesus have been baptized into his death? So clearly Paul believes that the saints at Rome do know what he's referring to. They're not ignorant, they just need to be reminded of it, like many of us do. 
And here it is, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now that word binding is really strong. It means that, that you are ruled by it, mastered by it, if you will. And remember back in chapter six, Paul was talking about the slave relationship we had with sin once upon a time, but after the new birth, we've actually been moved out of that realm and we've become slaves of God himself, slaves of righteousness. It's a different kind of servanthood altogether. Well, he's picking up on some of those themes again, and he's gonna do so in the context of marriage. So whereas the law once held that mastery or ruling authority in an individual's life, look at how he now illustrates the the change that Jesus makes for us. Verse two, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. That term that we translated into English, married woman, appears only once in the New Testament, and it's a really strong word, uh, and in our generation, it would probably offend a lot of women who would say, I would never think of marriage as being subjection to a husband. But Paul uses a really strong term. A married woman, a, a woman who is subject to her husband, uh, has certain expectations. It's a very Jewish kind of thinking and a reflection of a couple of key passages in the Old Testament um, that speak of this kind of jurisdiction. But now notice, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. She's free from any obligation or liability. You know, it's interesting to me, in different uh, faiths of the world, there are different viewpoints on what kind of obligations a spouse has after the death of another. Did you know that in Islamic tradition, there's a mandated period of waiting before a widow uh, could pursue remarriage? And I did a little bit of reading in that this week, and the term itself is called Ida, I-D-D-A-H. You could look that up. And there, there's a certain period of weeks or even months and, and a couple different scenarios that are laid out where in time she could be, but not immediately. So back to what my friend said about taking a date to his wife's funeral, that, that would not fly in, in Islam, at least not for a woman. In LDS tradition, a woman married in the temple may not remarry because she has been sealed to her husband for time and eternity. But in the historic Christian tradition, we believe because Jesus taught that marriage does not continue in heaven, and then Paul himself puts forward a principle like this, that the privileges and obligations of marriage continue only while the, the husband and wife are alive. And so our marriage vows, again in the historic Christian tradition, often include the little phrase, till death do us part. The Bethunes are celebrating 47 years today. 47 years ago, you all made promises to one another, didn't you? And you probably said things like, uh, I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, having no idea what those days would look like or how many there would be. And you even said things like this, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And, and no couple who stands at the, at the marriage altar is ever thinking about uh, sickness and poverty and all the other negative stuff in those vows. But we still promise those things, don't we? Till death do us part. And no one would ever look forward to the death of a spouse, but that alters that relationship, and it does so forever. 
Now Paul goes on to say in verse three, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Yeah, that's a breaking of the vow. That's a breaking of the exclusive covenant relationship that a husband and wife were designed by God to enjoy in the context of marriage. But, he says, if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. It's not an act of unfaithfulness. It's not sin. The death of her husband frees her. Paul is using this to demonstrate how, spiritually speaking, we too have have entered into a new relationship because a death took place. Now, here's the interesting thing. You would almost expect this, uh, this analogy, if it's the death of the woman's husband that frees her, you would almost expect Paul to come back and say, and sin died, or the law died. But that's not what he says, is it? Look at verse four. The believer's death to the law is what changes our relationship to the law. Likewise, my brothers, he says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You're the one who died. So that old spouse, if you will, sin and the law that might come around and say, hey, we used to be in a relationship. Sorry, that's the old me. The old me died. I have no obligation to you any longer. I have no liability to you. One author writes, to be dead to the law, as we have seen, means to be delivered from the power sphere of the law. It does not necessarily mean that the believer has nothing more to do with the law. That's what I was touching on earlier. We would still honor the Ten Commandments and keep them, but we've been delivered from the realm where the law operates as, as a means of approaching God. It was John Calvin who wrote, this release is not from the righteousness which is taught in the law, but from the rigid demands of the law and from the curse which follows from its demands. The curse that follows from those who don't keep it. That's where we all were. That's, that's why before Jesus, some of you experienced so much frustration. You, you had these good desires in yourself to do some things, but you couldn't do it. Inevitably, you just seemed to like, run into a dark corner, whether it be of your soul or of life or relationships, well, you were a slave to sin. You were in a relationship with obligations and liability that kept you in that place. But now here's the key to understanding Paul's point. And I love this phrase, and this has been sweet for my own soul this last week. Paul says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You died for the purpose of entering a new relationship. When Jesus died that horrible death on the cross and entered the tomb on that Friday evening, it was not simply just a a work that he did to symbolize something for you and for me. There was a spiritual reality unfolding where the old you also died with him. And that death severed the old relationship you had with the law. And notice the words the Holy Spirit chooses to convey the power of this thought that you might belong 
to another. That is that you might come into a new state of being and in particular being possessed by. Now for uh, the uh, typical American Western mindset that that's a little difficult. Like I don't want to belong to anybody. I mean, I, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? And, and we don't want to think of ourselves, but you can't think of this as, as an ownership of where, where you personally would be suppressed or oppressed. It's not that kind of belonging. I was thinking about this for as, as long as I can remember. I think probably the quintessential Valentine's greeting uh, is be mine. I haven't looked up the history to see if I could find, like where did that originate this week? And I, it wasn't crystal clear to me. Although there's a really interesting history with Valentine's Day and even the, the, the exchange of cards as we now experience them. You should go look at that some particular time. But that little phrase, be mine, is printed on cards and it's even stamped on chalky little candies that we exchange. And when you receive a Valentine's card with that little phrase, be mine, you are not typically uh, offended by that. But rather you're flattered and honored and moved that another human being would so desire you for an exclusive relationship with them that they would actually say, would you be mine? Could I call you my Valentine? And I don't want to call anybody else my Valentine. And to that extent, if you affirm and, and answer that with a yes, you, you might say you belong to that person and they belong to you. And that's exactly what the Lord is communicating to us, that you now belong to me. And you go back to thinking about how horrific, if we can call it this, the, the previous marriage to sin and the law was. And God, through Christ's death and your union with him in that death, has delivered you from that, broken that relationship, never to be resumed, and now brought you into a new relationship where you could actually say, I belong to Jesus. What a privilege. Unless you think that it is some kind of dark, enslaving, difficult relationship, he even uses the next little phrase to remind us, this is the one who has been raised from the dead. So the Christian life is not just a, a memorial to the Christ who died, but rather it's a relationship to the one who rose again, the one who will never die again, who defeated every sin, who defeated that great foe death itself, who was resurrected from the tomb and ascended on high, who at this moment, according to his promise, is preparing a place for us to live with him. And this would be another side study, but if you have not set your heart on the marriage supper of the Lamb, the beautiful images that describe Christ as the groom and the church as his bride and the beauty and glory that awaits us, I mean, they're all, those truths are all in the text. That is the destiny of those who repent and believe. It's wonderful that Paul refers to Christ in this particular way, the one who who has been resurrected. Now look at the next phrase, in order that we may bear fruit for God. A variety of opinions as to what this phrase means, but in contrast with what Paul will say just a few lines below this, that, that in that former relationship, the only fruit you bore was unto death. It's clear that in relationship with Jesus, now the fruit has to do with life and what is good and 
what is righteous and holy and honorable. What an unbelievable transformation. Well, the heart of Christ is so inclined toward people like you and me that in his death and resurrection, he lays claim to you. And really in the gospel call says in so many ways, aren't you tired of slaving under the old power system? Aren't you weary from the weight of the law resting on your soul, knowing that you can never keep it perfectly? Aren't you weary of being railroaded by sin deeper and deeper into your sin? Aren't you ready for a new relationship? Don't you want to be married to another? I love Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then in affirmation, in verse 3, and we read this earlier, I am the Lord your God. So in the same way that he delights to say you are mine, He also delights for people like you and me to say, and you, God, are mine. What a privilege. For some of you, God is distant. You believe in him, but you really struggle to fathom that there could be a God who would enter into such a personal, intimate relationship with you. I mean, you read the word much like you read an encyclopedia. It tells you wonderful things about God, but, but you even struggle to read that in an intimate, personal way where it would draw you into the presence of God. But that's what this word is designed for. And perhaps an evidence that you are still in the old power system of the law is how you approach the word. You read it and, and find a, a kind of delight in it, but it's really more from an intellectual standpoint or traditional standpoint, but the thought of opening the word and having the living God speak to you and draw near to you where, where he would say in the most tender and intimate and powerful word of love, you are mine. I mean, that's like de- defying your understanding and belief, but that's the God of this Bible. And this is no fairy tale story, so to speak, you know, where the, the princess is in need of rescue and a prince shows up and you know, plants the kiss on her cheek that wakes her. It's actually a lot better than that. It's the prince of life and the prince of glory who entered this world to rescue millions upon millions of people who were enslaved to sin, had no hope of being, uh, of being delivered, and had no power to deliver themselves. And by his death and resurrection, plants a kiss of forgiveness and righteousness and peace on our souls and says, you are mine. Well, belonging to Christ now produces a different kind of life. Look at verse 5 with me, if you will, please. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. There it is. There's the contrast. You're alive in Jesus now. You're going to bear fruit of a whole different kind. And Paul says, let's, let's be reminded, we once served our sinful passions leading to death. Now look closely at verse 5 for a moment with me. While we were living in the flesh, that's past tense, it's a pre-conversion condition, our sinful passions 
aroused by, that is by means of the law, were at work. Our sinful passions were at, at work and they were producing this, this fruit for death. And it's clear that the passions that Paul is speaking of are, are equivalent to what he had spoken of earlier back in chapter one, those desires that are characterized by sin and, and evil and unrighteousness. But they were at work. They were operating in our members. And it's interesting, the relationship of, of those kinds of works to the law. And it's gonna take us a, another week or two to really dig in uh, all the way with this and, and go to the full extent. But let me just touch on a couple of things here. Those sinful passions were actually using the very law of God to incite you to sin. You say, how does that operate? We'll get into this in the week to come, I'm sure, but I want you to think of it this way. This was a very helpful analogy uh, that I ran across this way. The sinful passions use the law the way a locomotive uses the tracks to run on. The tracks are not inherently evil. Paul will even go on to say in this chapter that the law is good and it's holy. The problem's not in the law. But there is a force at work in our world that would even use God's law to take people a direction they don't want to go to a destination they don't intend. And particularly for Jews, the law, as one author writes, was considered a great bulwark against sin. But here, according to Paul, it's an instrument that sin has used to produce more sin. And see, again, it reinforces this whole notion that Paul has been just relentlessly trying to attack. If you think you can keep the law and make your way to heaven, you are wrong. You cannot do it. And here's another way to approach that where he says the law will, or sin will actually use God's law to drive you deeper and deeper into sin. Verse six, and with this verse, we'll, we'll conclude for the morning. So that's the old way, and in contrast to that, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Paul now uh, says, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So here's another term of, of freedom and deliverance. Released means you're, you're legally free from the obligation or liability. Now again, we don't, table the Ten Commandments. It just means that I never look at that table of, of Ten Commandments or the other you know, hundreds of, of laws and commands throughout the Old New Testament. I never look at that, again, as a means of my own salvation. I've been released. Been released from captivity. The restraint, the control. Now Paul goes on to say, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that Little phrase, the written code is the Mosaic law as this power system, which I've been touching on all throughout this message. It's what Paul just said was being employed by sin to stir up all kinds of, of passions. And that's a little ironic, isn't it? We serve in the new way. That's because there's a new relationship, a new marriage, if you will. And the husband in this relationship is not an abuser. The husband in this relationship is the most generous, self-sacrificing spouse you could ever know. And we serve happily placing ourselves under his authority because we know that the highest good for us is achieved only there. So we're no longer slaves to a system. We are servants of the most high God who loves us and says, you are mine. 
Our lives are completely new. And our relationship to God through Christ is completely new. Slavery of sin, broken. Now servants to Christ. An abusive relationship that could be described in terms of of marriage, it's ended because we died with Jesus and a new relationship has come. I wonder this morning if you are still living under the law as if it were a controlling, enslaving power sphere. I wonder if you are trying to do enough good to keep God off your back and kind of the, the, the big system satisfied. It's slavery. You'll never be good enough. Two weeks ago, I spoke of what psychologists referred to as battered spouse syndrome. It's a condition created by sustained physical, sexual, and or emotional abuse, and it creates a variety of physical and emotional symptoms, and one of those things is often that the spouse who is being so abused and battered is reluctant to leave the relationship, whether for feelings of uh, false feelings of guilt or, or feelings of insecurity and, and it's what I know and we'll make it work out, false hopes. And you know, sin would love to keep you in a similar position. It gives you just enough pleasure for a little while longer, but in the end, that pleasure always turns to bitterness and chaos and destruction and it will ultimately lead to death. And in great love and rescuing mercy, Jesus comes to those who are so enslaved, so abused by sin and darkness and the adversary and says, come to me, come to me now. I died in order that you might die to that relationship and and be alive to me, the resurrected Christ. Sin will continue to weaponize the law in a totally abusive way. Sin will enslave you for as long as you remain in that relationship and seek to obligate you in a way that will do nothing more than batter you and bruise you and destroy you. Don't you want to belong to Christ? Don't you want to be his? Christian, have you forgotten that you belong to Christ? Perhaps you've returned to some of the old habits and sin patterns. Maybe in recent days you went back to some of the very things that you have repented of before and, and you found a little temporary pleasure in that sin, but even hearing this this morning, isn't your heart warm toward Christ and the hardness melting away? And aren't you saying in response to his great and eternal be mine, oh Lord Jesus, take me again? I hope so. That's exactly where you need to be. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you know how much he offers you? Don't return to that sin. The response he longs for is a simple, yes, Lord, I am yours and will be yours. And so as we testified at the very outset of the service in answer to all those questions of who is able to do these certain things, and I love the chorus of that, song this is amazing grace i sing for all that you've done for me only jesus breaks the power of sin and darkness only jesus has a love so mighty and so strong that he can end what once was and create a whole new beginning only jesus leaves us breathless in awe and wonder let's bow in prayer lord this is amazing grace indeed It's hard for us to imagine, but your love is unfailing. 
you are the one who took our place on the cross, laying down your life to pay the debt of sin that we created. And you did it all that enslaved sinners like us would be set free. Oh, Jesus, we sing for all that you've done for us. Thank you. I pray that you would give faith to those who want to believe these things this morning yet struggle. Say, I'll always be marked by my sin. I'll always be in a relationship with this addiction. I'll always be in a place of discouragement because I cannot shake this great evil. Oh, Lord God, would you give that precious soul the power to believe the promises of your gospel that when Jesus died and went into the tomb, he carried it all with him. The debt is paid in full by his blood. The death that he died is real. We may confidently say, the old me died with him and a new me has been resurrected with him. Oh, let that powerful truth encourage and comfort, console every heart here. And Lord Jesus, would you establish your dominion within us that we would continue to turn away from sin and turn to you, the living Christ, that we may know the fullness of joy and abundance of life that you came to give. And by your Spirit, through this word, would you continue to speak until we believe it fully. You are mine. You are precious in my sight. I am your God. Father, would you take your word and seal it to our hearts. And whatever opinions or ideas or notions in our heads or hearts that would run contrary to the gospel, um, expel them all. Just wash them away and let only your truth remain. And we pray for your blessing upon this dear assembly for Christ's sake and because of all that he is and all that he has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.